we're still in the first chapter of uh, the story of Joseph, first main chapter of the story of his life, Genesis chapter 37. And uh, in just a few moments, I I hope you'll see why where we are right now in the story fits right into the reality that we experience and we celebrate and we uh, learn about uh, as we engage in the season of harvest. Here is a young man uh, in Joseph destined to soar to great heights of God's purpose for his life. A young man who, as we've already talked about, will rise above the mire, the mud, the muck of his family background. Here is a man who had a dream in his heart of what one day would be, a man in whose life God is already at work. All of which serves to make incongruous, all of which serves to make even more tragic that Joseph should end this opening chapter not forging forward in God's purpose, as it would seem, but stuck against his will in a pit. Joseph, God's man, is abandoned in a pit. When Joseph came to his brothers, verse 23, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern, uh, cisterns dug out by shepherds into the ground, big hollow ground that would, that would hold water, a narrow vase neck at the top. We know from verse 24 that this one was empty. There was no water uh, in it. Uh, and we press the pause button right there this morning because it's all topsy turvy. It's all the wrong way round. Surely God's man or God's woman with God's vision flourishes. Surely the person who is setting their face to follow the dream that God has given them will find success and favor. But it's all wrong. It seems that in these opening verses, it's uh, evil that's flourished not goodness. It's not God's purpose that seems to uh, have ended the chapter in charge, but some other purpose that's against his will and purpose. So what's it all got to do with harvest? At its heart, harvest is a celebration that our God provides. Do I get a a little amen for that? Harvest is a celebration that our God provides. And and so we began, and it's all connected. Connections are everywhere. We began thinking about the way God provides our physical needs in the food that we've gathered and the fruit that we've brought and what we offer to share. It looks like vultures landed and disappeared now, doesn't it, uh, over, over there, with all the food that's going out right now in the name of Jesus to uh, homes around these uh, buildings. Harvest is a celebration that our God provides. But when we began to worship, We were led in our worship to focus on the God who ultimately has provided in Jesus. 
Because in the same way, you can't say to a hungry child, God loves you without in some way meeting their physical need. So God doesn't beam from heaven, I love you, without getting involved in the normal provision of our daily lives. And then as we move through our time of worship, we thought of the way that God provided on the cross. And then we began to bring that right down into the here and now, that God provides at all times. That beautiful song that Tim Gosden uh, has written that we've been singing recently that prophetically speaks into the here and now that at all times, at every moment, God provides. So, so harvest is not just a moment for us to celebrate God's provision. It's also a moment to be challenged or reminded about where we put our trust. It's not just about being thankful or thank-filled, but it's about being trust-filled. And here's Joseph. Facing the crisis of faith of his entire life thus far. The harvest celebration invites us to think about where we're placing our trust. Not just for our physical needs, but for all of our needs. And the first fruits that they would gather in, and a couple of years ago I preached at harvest time, on the festival of the first fruits. They would offer the beginnings of the harvest back to God as a reminder to them that even though they have not gathered in the whole harvest, even though they are not yet fully confident that the harvest will flourish and there will be a full provision, they offer, having waited and prayed that the harvest would come, they offer the beginnings back to God that says within it all, it's not going to be our hard work, it's not going to be the labor of the, f- labor of the farm workers or the vineyard workers, but in the end we offer you back the beginnings of this harvest because we're acknowledging that in all things or at all times, we will trust in you. In a sense, today's story, therefore, couldn't be more appropriate. Does God really provide for us. As Joseph's backside smacked against the hard clay of the cistern floor, as he looked up at the narrow entrance through which shafts of light were coming in the midst of the otherwise dark cistern, as he faced the physical trauma of being enclosed with no water or no food, the emotional anguish of the hatred of his brothers and the spiritual anxiety of where on earth is God? He asked the question that you have often asked and we've all asked in those moments. Where is God? Where is he? Does he really provide for us? And that's Psalm 22 that Margaret uh, read to us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the crisis of faith that has echoed through the ages. It's the cry of humanity at moments of pressure, 
At moments when it feels like to us God has completely abandoned us, that we cry out, where is God when you need him the most? Where was God when they stripped him of the robe? Where was God when they dragged him kicking and screaming into that system? Where was God when they dumped him and went on their way? And we've all known times when something has happened that has plunged us into a crucible, a crisis of faith, plunged us into a cistern of despair, plunged us into a dungeon of fear, and we've cried out loud maybe even in our hearts, God, where are you? Desperate, angry, frustrated, disorientated, ready to walk out. Where is your provision? Where is your help? Where is the good, good Father that we sing about? The old writers use the term deos absconditus. God who is absent or hidden. God who cannot be seen or cannot be found. And I think if we're honest... We've all been in that place. When in our hearts, it feels like God has abandoned us. God has not been faithful to his side of the bargain. It feels like God hasn't kept his word. Anyone know what we're talking about? Where is he? Where is he? Good, good father? Where is he? I'm in this pit. And God is nowhere to be seen. And so we instinctively, we instinctively, sorry, understand how Joseph feels. We understand what the writers meant about God being hidden and absent. The day when tragedy visits and circumstances hurl us into a pit, when we pray and we feel nothing, and we sing songs and we feel nothing, and we read words of Scripture and they feel so trite, so weak, so helpless, so whatever they feel, and we cry out. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you left me, forsaken me, abandoned me? How we navigate the crisis of faith is absolutely related to how we then go on to fulfill God's purpose for our lives. You see, the story of Joseph is that he rises to a position of great influence, which is, as we've been saying, our story. God's calling on our lives is to become influencers, to be salt and light in this world. But in order to get to that place, Joseph would need to navigate this crisis of faith. He would need to navigate the crisis of moral choice. He would need to navigate the crisis of, uh, of waiting year on year. He would need to navigate the crisis of disappointment. And how we handle those things becomes directly related to how we push through or break through into God's greater purpose for our lives. So how do we handle the crisis of faith? How do we cope 
with those moments when at the time I would have expected God to be right there with me, it's like he's left the room. I want to offer four encouragements. I don't know what they are. Four principles, four guidelines, four bits of framework, four aspects of truth that help us navigate the crisis of faith. When God seems hidden, remember, number one, it's normal. Remember, it's normal. When we enter times of darkness, or the slimy pit, as the psalmist calls it, or a desert time, to use another biblical metaphor, we are traveling a well-trodden path. And sometimes, there's a huge relief just to know it's normal. You've experienced that moment when you've been facing perhaps a physical health symptom, and you go to the doctor, and the doctor lights up with recognition. And, and, ah, they've seen this before. I'm not going out of my mind. This isn't a unique issue for me that no other human being has ever faced. And there is an element of relief in the normality. It's when your doctor goes, <gasps> that it induces in you a different kind of reaction. There is something about normalizing the faith journey that helps us when we come on a Sunday, and of course everybody else is feeling God really close. And everybody else is hearing God speak. And everybody else leapt out of bed at half past three this morning to fit in some extra worship time. And you haven't heard God speak for a week or a month or a year. So helpful to know that what Joseph experienced and what so many experience, Elijah, desolate in the cave, wishing his life was over, longing to die. Jeremiah lowered into a dungeon until he sank in the mire. The people of Israel, totally disorientated in exile, thinking, where's God in this strange place with these huge Babylonian gods? Wondering if God uh, would completely abandon them. When God seems hidden, remember, it's normal. And so resist the lies that come in there right at the beginning. I'm a rubbish Christian. My faith is useless or worthless. How disappointed God must be in me when I feel like this. And these lies begin to get a stranglehold on us. The Bible's so honest and so real. There will be times in the walk of faith when that faith is pushed to crisis point. Think about Mary, the mother of Jesus, who said so faith-filled and so full of faith, Lord, let it be to me according to your word. I'm up for everything that you have. I will follow you. I'm up for your promise. And then stand near her outside a city as she looks into the eyes of her son on a cross. And don't tell me 
there wasn't a cry in her heart who said, God, what on earth have you done? I never signed up for this. My God, my God, why have you abandoned us? And what broke the cry that day was her son echoing those very words. God, why have you left us and abandoned us here? We love Psalm 23, don't we? The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not be in. He makes me. He leads me beside. He then what does he do? Guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Surely then I walk through the valley shadow of death. I'll face the crisis of faith. Even if the Lord is my shepherd. And we see the confusion and the struggle in so many places, especially in the Psalms. I say to God, my rock. So I have this truth, I have this reality that God is my rock. Why have you forsaken me? I, 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 didn't, I didn't imagine that I would be feeling like this. I, wouldn't, I didn't have this as my reality. God, you are my rock, yet I feel like you have forgotten me. And the Christian church is littered with examples. St. John the Cross famously named it the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul. And if you're in a pit this morning, in a desert place, a wilderness, a dark night of the soul, begin with this encouragement. That what you are experiencing right now is in common, not just with the people of faith, but it's in common with even the great people of faith. It's part of the journey. Secondly, when God seems hidden, remember the pathway. Remember the pathway. What do I mean by that? Well, it seems to me that there is a universal principle. There might be exceptions. In fact, there's usually always an exception, isn't there? So um, bear that in mind. But there's often a, a principle that is generally true. That in order to soar to the heights of God's purpose for our lives, we sometimes find ourselves going down into a pit or two along the way. In order to soar to the heights of God's purpose for our lives, we will find ourselves going down into a pit or two along the way. That, to me, seems to be the universal experience of all the greats in the Bible. Moses survived abandonment in the bulrushes and decades in exile before soaring to become a great leader. Joseph would survive the pit, slavery, the dungeon, the bedroom, and all of that stuff. Daniel would survive a den of Jesus would survive an assassination attempt in the early days of his life. He would spend 40 days head-to-head -head with Satan in the wilderness and so on. And what is true of characters of biblical history is, is so often true of uh, uh, characters in church history. Perhaps if you are into you know, historical Christian figures, uh, those that reach the heights have always, always, always got a backstory of struggle and strife and disappointment and wrestling 
and so on. Richard Foster, the great modern spiritual writer, puts it like this. It's true that those in the first flush of faith are often given universal... Sorry, I'll start again. It's true that those in the first flush of faith are often given unusual graces of the Spirit, just as a new baby is cuddled and pampered. It's also true that some of the deepest experiences of alienation and separation from God have come to those who've traveled far into the interior realms of faith. So often the road through to God's purpose includes dark valleys. Takes us back to that psalm, doesn't it? Psalm 23. We go, we believe that psalm. We love that psalm. I I, I put my life on that psalm. That psalm says that God provides and that he leads us. If you think of the imagery of the shepherd and the sheep, the shepherd would lead the sheep. Why would a shepherd lead the sheep through a dark valley? Because they were looking for green pasture. They were looking for green pasture. The shepherd's responsibility was to take the sheep to the place of green pasture. And what's this metaphor, this imagery saying to us? As the shepherd leads us, there is an inevitability that we will go through dark valleys along the way. And we know in our own experience that you only have to set out in the morning to really do something great for God, and by lunchtime or maybe even coffee time, you're going to feel a bit battered and bruised. How many times have you been full of excitement and enthusiasm? Yes! And then it's all fallen apart around you. Too many examples in too many places for us to begin to rehearse or record them. Why? Why does it happen? Why no sooner have you set off on God's purpose than suddenly you're in a dark valley or you're in a cistern or you're facing a crisis of faith? Well, we know why it happened to Joseph, don't we? His father was passive. His brothers were angry. It was a reality waiting to happen. But is that all? Is there not a reminder in these verses that there is the physical world that we can see and the spiritual world that we can't see and we live in a reality with those two come together. What happened to Jesus, I think, is very instructive. Just as he's starting out on his ministry, he finds himself driven into the desert where he faces the devil. Just as Jesus starts out So the spiritual forces in the spiritual world go, "Uh uh-huh, I don't think so. Just as the early church burst into life in Acts chapter 2 and 3, what happened? There was opposition. Is, Is that just a sheer coincidence? It's probably not a coincidence when good people stop good things happening. Do you know when the good people in the Bible say, that was bad to heal that man on the Sabbath? When good people in the Bible go, that's bad to preach about Jesus. And so there's something else going on, isn't there? And so as soon as we launch off into God's given purpose for our lives, there's a a whole spiritual world that goes, "Uh uh-huh, I don't think so. Not that that should put us off, not that that should frighten us, because greater is he that is in than he that's in the world. 
<laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We know the same in our own lives. We set off on something we believe God's called us to. It's no wonder that Paul said, look, in the end, our fight is not against uh, uh, flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers of this dark uh, world. So there is a little warning here. Two little warnings, I think. Little warning number one. If you're going to set off with God's vision in your heart, just get ready for trouble. Honestly, just get ready for it. Because Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Do not be afraid, I have overcome the world. So warning number one is, is don't be surprised. And therefore, don't, don't, don't face the crisis of faith thinking, oh my word, this has all gone terribly wrong. I, I, I never thought it would turn out like this. And the second thing is, sometimes we say, uh, and this is, I think, a real mismatch to what we know is true and the way we apply it in our human experience. Uh, and we all do it. So if I'm getting at you, then I'm getting at everybody, including myself. If plans slot into place really easily, what do we say? What do we say? How many times do we say, oh God, must have been it, it all fell into place? I can't think of one plan in the Bible that all fell into place. Now there's a thought. I'm not suggesting for one moment that sometimes things don't fall into place and it's part of God's purpose. But the fact that it came easy is no way a guarantee that that was God's plan and purpose. No way at all. Really hard to find a, 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 a proof text. That's what we call it. We grab a text out of nowhere and say, therefore it means a proof text that it'll all go swimmingly well. So remember the pathway. Isaiah sums it up, I think. The reality of, do not fear, for I've redeemed you. In other words, I've rescued you. I've summoned you by name. You are mine. Isn't that brilliant? The God of heaven says, you are mine. You can't get more affirmation than that. You can't get greater security than that. The God of heaven has you and me in his strong grip. He says, you're mine, you belong to me. But then it says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. It's a when rather than an if. When God seems hidden, then remember it's normal. Remember the pathway. Thirdly, remember God's purpose. Remember God, you see, God's always working his purpose out. We're taken by surprise when things go wrong, but God isn't, and he's already got a plan. He's not surprised. He did not have a council in heaven wondering what to do next because Joseph was an assistant and God hadn't seen that coming. So what do I mean by remember God's purpose? Remember in the, it in the fullest sense that God is working his purpose out. But remember that God will actually work his purpose out in it, not when it's over. So I don't know about you, when things go wrong and we're put in a bit of a pickle, we think to ourselves, once we've got through this and we've finished with it, then we can get back on track with God, where we, what we were doing in the first place. No, no, no. Actually, in the reality, God is at work. In all things, it says... God works for good. It doesn't say all things are good, most often misquoted, but in all things, the God that we put our trust in is at work. And in these dark, awful times, there are treasures and riches which were promised in Isaiah here. And some of the greats talk about 
the purification that happens in these times of darkness and struggle and strife. Firstly, we're purified of our external dependence, things that we naturally depend upon to make our lives feel safe. So we feel safe normally because we have a routine, because we have uh, our physical health, perhaps, because we have our jobs, because we have friends, success, possessions. None of those things are wrong, but their presence in our lives helps us feel stable. And we can assess quite easily sometimes our level of dependence on those things because if we were to take one of them away, we realize how unstable we can suddenly feel. So for some of us, we get our security because everything around us is neat and tidy and sort of controlled. So you will know that if there's a mess in some part of your house that perhaps someone else mightn't even think was a mess, you're all at sea with yourself until you get it tidied up. Because there's a, there's a dependence on something external. Uh, and it, it's, that's not to have a, a, a sort of a, a pop at that particular personality type. We all do it. We've all got different things that help us feel in, uh, 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 secure. Things in which we trust. So when we sing, at all times, I will trust the Lord, what we're really singing is, at all times I will trust the Lord, providing I've still got that job and the house is still tidy. That's what we're really singing, if we're honest. But I guess Tim couldn't get that to fit in the stanza, so it didn't quite work as a song, so left that bit out. Because there's these, but when these things are stripped away, and it's awful, and, and we're making light of it, but it's terrible sometimes when the experiences that we go through shake us to the core. But God is at work in those moments, releasing us from anything that we have learned to depend on that ultimately isn't on him. Because our trust is to be in him and him alone. And I've told you this story several times, the story of a man who falls off a cliff, but he manages to grab hold of a branch halfway down. And he yells up, is anyone up there? The voice comes from the top of the cliff, yes, who is it? God. Bit of a pause. Not quite the answer he was expecting. Can you help me, God? Let go of the branch. Is anyone else up there? (laughs) Because we will fight the tendency to trust in him alone. And sometimes if these things are never, even momentarily, taken away or seem a little less certain, a little more shaky, we never learn to develop that trust. That trust that we see so powerfully in um, the Scriptures. Secondly, uh, it also takes away our dependence on internal things. So we might trust external things to make us feel safe or, or we might have a trust in internal things. Uh, in other words, our feelings. So, uh, and again, depending on our personality, we'll lean towards one or the, or the other. So I, I feel, if I feel God loves me, then he must love me. If I feel God is with me, then he is with me. If what I'm doing in, I'm succeeding in, then I know that God is happy with me. And our trust, our faith, gets locked into how we feel. These desert moments can bring liberation. Because we can look back 
at times when we didn't feel like God was with us, when we didn't feel like we were making a success of things, when we didn't feel like it was all working out, and see that God had always been there anyway. In other words, his love for me is constant, his provision for me is constant, even if I don't feel it, even if I can't immediately see it. God is God despite how I feel or where I am. If I'm in a pit, then God is God, just as much as if I'm on a mountaintop. And my faith suddenly gets liberated from my circumstances. And I think we can all understand the value of that faith, therefore being deeper and stronger, because the moment our circumstances change, our faith alters, doesn't it? In reality. If it's a really bad week, then I'm not sure God loves me anymore. If it's a brilliant week, maybe he does. And so we're locked in to what's going on around us. We're locked into how we feel. And in these moments, God works his supreme purpose. Because above all else, God wants us to say, it's you and you alone. You'll have no other gods before me is the refrain through the whole of the Old Testament. You won't trust anything else other than me. Peter put it well, I think, um, towards the end of uh, the Scriptures. These trials, these difficulties, these struggles, these circumstances have come so that the, uh, so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed, which perishes even though refined through fire. Our faith becomes richer, deeper, and stronger. The faith like Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego that said to the king, chuck us in that fire, even if we are burned, we will not bow down and we will still praise him. I would have said, chuck me in the fire. If I don't get burned, I'll still praise my God. How about that? Job, end of verse, end of chapter 3. I think it is. No, end of chapter 13, middle of chapter 13. When all that's going on in Job's life, he's having a rough deal to say the least. And he says, though he slay me, yet... I will trust in him. It's, it's an, an amazing moment of faith in the book that effectively says, whatever from my human standpoint, my human perception, my human vantage point, whatever I'm tempted to think about who God is and what God is like, I'm going to put all that outside. I'm still going to trust him because he is God and I am not. Finally, when God seems hidden, we're remembering God's pathway and his pathway, we're remembering it's normal, uh, and we're remembering, you can, you, we don't really whoop as a congregation, do we? <laughs> Generally speaking, I, I've noticed, not really, we're not really whoopers, are we? I'm not quite sure what we, we are, I'm not sure what we are, but you could whoop, you could have a whoop go at this, right? Remember, when God seems hidden, remember, it's not the end. Very good. Very good. So you can do it. That's a surprise, isn't it? To all of us. When God seems hidden, it's not the end. 
It's not the end when God seems hidden. Your pit is not the end of the story. And do you know what we're tempted to do with pits? We're tempted to make them home. If you stay anywhere for a while, you want to make it like home. Well, some of you do more than others. So if we, if we go somewhere on holiday for a few days, some members of our family like to unpack, put the stuff in the drawers, take it out of the suitcase. When Kerry and I were speaking at a church weekend and Kerry and I and the boys went on, we were there at least a good 24 hours uh, ahead of her. We saw no reason to take anything out of the suitcase other than what we immediately put on. But there is a temptation if you're somewhere for a period of time, to forget that you're in exile, forget that you're passing through, and to start making it home. Do you know, this pit's not so bad. We could put that picture up there. We could get a little bench, get a seat, put some light. We could put some fairy lights up. <laughs> and some bunting. Do you know, I could settle here. And we forget that it's not the end of the story. The, the shepherd never leads the sheep into the dark valley to make that dark valley home. What do you do through the dark valley? Even though I never sit down in a dark valley because you might be tempted not to get up again. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock, gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see her and fear and put their trust in him. In God, there's always hope, always a future, always a deliverance. And I think the key is perspective. From a Joseph's human perspective, he had had it. It was all over, abandoned. Even God had abandoned him and left him. But from God's perspective, there was already a Bedouin group of caravanners heading along the way. From God's perspective, there was already a plan. From God's perspective, nothing had been thwarted. From God's perspective, everything was still safe. And again, behind the physical world that we see is a spiritual world that we don't. We're not just the forces of evil are at work, that the evil men carried out an attack on Joseph, put him in a pit, but actually the sovereign Lord of history was at work. And Egypt was already in God's sights long before Joseph could see it or perceive it. And it's amazing that Joseph would look back incredibly on these events and what he wouldn't say was that you horrible brothers did this to me. He would end up looking back on these events and say, I can see that God was always in control. It was you who sent me here, but God... Sorry, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Or as he would later say to his brothers, you did intend to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Even though we cannot see it 
now, there is another perspective. And we need to trust in the God who is sovereign and see so much that we cannot see and promises to pull us through, all the way through. And as Genesis chapter 37 comes to an end, it's quite sobering really. Because what those cruel brothers pocketing the money from the sale didn't know, God knew. And what a heartbroken father didn't know, God knew. And what Joseph didn't know about where he was going and why, God knew. And incredibly for Joseph, he didn't let his hard heart grow hard. He didn't lick his wounds, vow to revenge his brothers, or walk out on the God of his dreams. But weeks later, he would arrive in Egypt and he would say there in Egypt, God is still with me. God is still with me. Our God will not fail. Let's be quiet for a moment.